Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The dead won't buy the It's the living you gotta worry about. Something if I couldn't keep them there with me. Hello! Hello, everybody. We are the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. I'm Vicky. And I am Janelle. And we are here today to talk about some murder. Yes, we are not here with the paranormal. We're here with the pre-ghosts. <laughs> I actually so. don't know how we found ourselves here. They were just like, yeah, let's throw in some murder for some spice. Yeah, I mean, how do you get a ghost? Crime. Murder. It's murder, right? <laughs> murder does all the ghosts. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are a bi-weekly true crime podcast. Uh, well, I guess true crime comedy. We say that so that people will laugh because we think we're funny. Yes. Um, <laughs> and we like to look at uh, various themes on all of our episodes. So uh, hopefully there is something for everybody. Um, but before we get started, why don't we head over to the newsroom real quick? Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> um, so I did bring a news story this week out of Henderson, Nevada. Okay, okay. Where a lawsuit is being brought based on the Third Amendment. Now, let's test our government knowledge. Do we remember what the Third Amendment is? Is that the one about bear arms? No. No. <laughs> uh, no. So it's no, sh- no soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner nor in time of war in a manner to be prescribed by law. Um, so essentially what happened is this family in Henderson, Nevada, um, was forcefully evicted from their home when police responded to a domestic violence call at a house in between these two houses. Okay. So these people were evicted. They were like, we need to stay in your houses. They like lured them to the police station under false pretenses and all this other stuff. So now they are suing the police department based on the Third, third Amendment. Well, okay. Hmm. Yeah. This is like pro tip. Make sure you're up on your governmental knowledge because this could save you one day. When you're quartered. When, you're, when police <laughs> when try to quarter themselves in, in your house. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So we're going to move on to our show, but... This is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners. Big content warning on this one. (laughs) We are talking about murder, specifically some child murder. Mm -hmm. Um, We will be talking about instances of rape and sexual assault. Um, 
I'm sorry you guys are here, so you're kind of stuck, but uh, our listeners at home, yeah. (laughs) Uh, This one might not be for you, but Janelle, what are we covering today? Well, we decided that since we're in the Chicagoland area, that we would cover some Chicagoland crimes. So, you know, (laughs) Chicago's home to a lot of murderers. We literally have, like, all the crime up in here. It's, It's a lot. I'd say that, like, Illinois-Wisconsin border is the sweet spot for murder. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, Wisconsin has a lot of serial killers, too. Yeah, like, let's yeah. not get it twisted. Yeah. Wisconsin is home to many a serial killer. Mm-hmm. The I'm... Midwest murder mecca is what we call it. Oh, ooh, I like that. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Are, we, so, are you going first? Or yeah, I going I'll go first. first. Okay. So today we're going to cover some cases. The way we kind of do our podcast is that we each pick an overall theme, and then we surprise each other with what the actual thing is. So for my pick, I decided that we're going to go back in the Wayback Time Machine, as I often like to do, and we're going to go to 1940s Chicago. Ooh. Yes. This is the That's good like times. mobsters and yes. prohibition? Was this too no. late for prohibition? <laughs> this is way past prohibition. I clearly am the history buff <laughs> on this show. So... I'm going to be talking about the Lipstick Killer. Ooh. Ooh, I so, love a good name. I love set, a good murder name. Let's set the scene. Okay. I'm going to try not to do my 1940s newsy voice, but it may happen. Close your eyes and imagine. <laughs> now, the city was in a state of rapid change. The war had just ended. GIs were returning. And it, everyone was kind of starting to settle down in the burbs, you know? Everything was growing. Okay. Okay. And it was June 1945 in the Edgewood neighborhood where Josephine Ross was found by her daughter dead in their apartment on North Kenmore Avenue. Oh my God, you are starting like right off right the top into with the, the murder. murder. All right. Yeah. Josephine Ross was a 43-year-old woman at the time of her death. She was divorced. She had a new fiance. Things were looking up. She was found in her apartment with multiple stab wounds to her chest, abdomen, and her dress had been wrapped around her head. Oh, my God. Okay. She was found with a clump of dark hair in her hand, and immediately they were like, the husband, ex-husband, I you mean, know? like, statistically, that is the it's most true. probable. Mm-hmm. Crimes of passion. That yes. happens. yes. So they went to the former husband, they went to the current fiancé, and they were both cleared. Their alibis were good. The scene, along with the hair, led investigators to believe that she must have been caught by surprise by a person and then put up a fight. Okay, okay. The original theory was that she caught a burglar coming into her home, and she tried to get them out. Now, a few months later, on December 10th, 1945, Frances Brown was found in her apartment on North Pine Grove Avenue in Chicago. Now, I put some addresses in here because I know the, like, Midwestern dad urge to be like, I know all these streets and neighborhoods. Oh, yeah, that's off of 83rd. Yeah, right? Uh, yeah, right there. By, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I got it. Oh, yeah. Um, so, <laughs> you might know these locations. They're pretty popular. Um, There are some kind of ghost tours that go by and do that sort of thing, uh, if you're interested in that. Now, when they found Frances Brown, she had a knife lodged in her neck and a bullet wound in her head. So, overkill. Oh, my God. This is going to be a theme. Yes. (laughs) This will be a theme today. Uh, Her head had been wrapped in towels. So, very much like the first murder, there was kind of a little bit of, I don't know, delicateness in the treatment of the body after the fact. Was it like uh, like that 
kind of thing where it's like, oh, this person knew the victim, so they didn't murder them as brutally type of deal? Um, not necessarily. Okay. Um, I feel like actually that might be reverse is true. Like, oh. you know the person, so you're filled with just quells of rage. I mean, maybe. <laughs> um, they also washed her body as well. So okay. there was a lot of, like, care towards the uh, body after death. Now, Brown was an ex-wave officer, which if you don't know what that is, um, it's the female branch of volunteers in the Navy. Um, So during World War II, she had signed up, she was out and about traveling, she came back and settled down. Um, When they came to the scene of the crime, on the wall, scrawled in lipstick, uh, was written the message in very janky handwriting that says, for heaven's sake, catch me before I kill more. I cannot control myself. Oh, my. Yes. Okay. So very, this is like a film noir movie kind of unfolding. Yeah, and honestly, like, if that's accurate, that's, that happens in a lot of cases where most people want to get caught. Oh, yeah. Eventually, mm-hmm. it, it, on some level. So after Brown was found, the police figured that the two murders were connected based off of the, the nature of the crime scene. One officer even floated the idea that they may have been killed by a woman. Oh, Scandal. my God. Women know. can't possibly kill, right? Women don't crime. No, never. <laughs> um, so now a third crime was committed, but this one was very different than the others. On January 7th, 1946, just a month after the last one, Suzanne Deegan's mother entered her room to wake her for school and found that she was missing. The Deegans immediately reported the six-year-old missing, and when the police arrived at the scene, they found two key pieces of evidence. Outside the girl's window was a ladder, and in her room was a ransom note. The note read, again, in very precarious handwriting, get 20,000 ready, horribly misspelled, and wait for word. Do not try to notify the FBI or police bills in fives and tens. So wait, was twenty thousand like spelled out like the word like in words? No, it was that was written out in okay. numbers, but it's like they spelled ready and wait incorrectly. Oh. Okay. <laughs> so okay. that'll be key later. Okay. On the back of the note there was instructions that said, burn this for her safety. So what does that mean? Some weird instructions. <laughs> also, why would you just leave the ladder behind? Right? It just is like I don't know. Like, of all things, the ladder. Mm-hmm. She was only in the second story also, so it was, like, not that far off the ground. Oh, my God. But like a step ladder, probably. Yeah, you could have really. Yeah. Now, Suzanne Deegan's father was an interesting fellow. He was an executive of the Office of Price Administration during the war. Now, this organization controlled pricing of agriculture products during the rationing and even after the war, as we were kind of getting back as an economy. The organization controlled... Mostly dairy and meat, and if you know anything about Chicago, it is a meatpacking town. Very much, yes. So, this being the meatpacking mecca, they still had lots of issues with the OPA. Several other executives in the organization had also received threats against their lives and their children's lives. Uh, Edward Kelly, who was the mayor of Chicago at the time, received a note that read... This is to tell you how sorry I am not to get old Deegan instead of his girl. Roosevelt and the OPA made their own laws. Why shouldn't I and a lot more? So, okay, a little taking things into their own hands kind yeah, of radicalization yeah. there. The authorities initially thought that one of the meat packers had kidnapped the girl. 
Um, although this would change pretty rapidly as they were kind of going through the course of their investigation. In their search, now this is where it's going to get pretty gruesome. Oh boy, I'm ready. In their search, they decided to go house to house, block by block, neighborhood by neighborhood. And then they received a tip anonymously about a day or two into the search that said, check the sewers around the neighborhood. Oh, God. Which is never a good sign. Oh, no. So, they began to search the sewer system, and in one of the sewers, a block from Deegan's home, they found the head of the girl in a storm drain. Oh, my God. Okay, I, I got you, zero to ten, brutal. I know. I got to tell you, was not expecting just a head. Like... Just the head. The whole body would have been weird enough, but just a head? Seriously? Yeah. Ooh. So I had a, we initially had like photos of the crime scene, but we couldn't get them to work. But if you look up the Deegan disappearance, you will find some very interesting crime scene photos. They don't show the body parts, but it is very much the press is everywhere. And so you just see tons of photographers hovering over all of these sewers. It's pretty ridiculous. Which is crazy, because that would not happen. No, oh, no, no. This was, like, back before, like, best practices for yeah. crime scenes were in place. And this would kind of play an important role later on in the investigation. The, the newspapers and the reporters would definitely sensationalize this a lot. Yikes. So they kept searching. They uncovered the head in a storm drain. Over the course of several weeks, they started to discover more pieces of the girl's body. They found her left leg in another drain and her arms in a sewer, um, although they were not able to find the torso and the rest of her. Oh. It was estimated that the perpetrator walked several miles to dispose of the body. But the most interesting part in their search was when they came to a laundry room in the basement of an apartment a few blocks away. They found in this apartment basement tons and tons and tons of blood all over the place in a wash basin. Oh my God. So they believed that the girl was dismembered here and that the perpetrator had wrapped her piece by piece and dropped her all over the Wait, place. Wait, did you say it was in the wash basin? Yeah. So just like a wash basin full of blood? Yep. Is what you're... Oh. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right. So... They believed that the person who perpetrated the crime had some sort of knowledge of anatomy or was a butcher by trade. Hmm, perhaps a meatpacker? Maybe. (laughs) So I believe the meatpacking theory kind of holds a little weight. But the police were like, hmm, maybe not. Maybe it's not a meatpacker or anyone who has anything to do with this. Because they found a few blonde hairs, a wire, and a handkerchief marked S. Sherman at the scene of the apartment basement. Okay. And I'm assuming the S. Sherman handkerchief had nothing to do with the person in the apartment. No. So they went on a manhunt to figure out who this S. Sherman was and where this handkerchief came from. They first accused the janitor of the building where the Deegans lived, and they brutally interrogated the man, like old school Chicago Police Department style. Which, let's be clear, like, Chicago police are still getting in trouble for that shit, like... But back then, there was absolutely no laws against it, Not great. Not a good look. (laughs) Um, His name was not Sherman, he did not have blonde hair, and he doesn't... He didn't speak or write English. So, couldn't have done the ransom note, doesn't have blonde hair, like, nothing's adding up. So they moved on to the next person. They decided to kind of hone in on the S. Sherman handkerchief. 
They set their sights on finding anyone in the city who has the name S. Sherman. Surprisingly, not that many people at the time had S. Sherman. That is really surprising because mm-hmm. that seems like a common name. Yeah. So the key here is, though, that they were looking for a man. Oh. Now, if you know anything about fashion, in the 1940s, women also carried monogrammed handkerchiefs. Yes. So yes. it also could have been a woman. Okay. <laughs> but they were decidedly looking for a man. Because, again, women don't crime. No, never. Um, so they did find an S. Sherman, Sidney Sherman, who lived in Hyde Park. They went to the individual's home. He had actually been missing for a few days, so that raised some red flags. Okay. He even gave notice to his boss, saying that he wasn't coming in anymore. I wish. <laughs> um, once they tracked the man down, they found him in Toledo, Ohio, and he had actually ran away to elope with his girlfriend, and he said, that handkerchief is not mine. I'm not a hanky guy. Oh, He got very offended about the hanky. (laughs) He's like, I don't care, no hankies. Um, The actual owner was eventually found, and his name was Seymour Sherman. And he actually was living in New York and from New York. And he had no idea how his handkerchief got from New York to Chicago. Oh, that's bizarre. Yeah. That's weird. So once again, the police had nothing. They don't know what's going on. They're trying to solve this case really quick because a child murder, not a good look. (laughs) No. So, by April of 1946, they had investigated 360 potential suspects and gave out over 100 polygraph tests Wow! with absolutely nothing to show for it. But on November 7th, 1946, that all changed when a call came in about an attempted robbery. William Hirons was caught attempting to burglarize an apartment, and the police arrived just as he was about to leave, and they gave chase. Hirons pulled out a gun and fired it at the police. He missed and kept running. And as he rounded a corner in true kind of, I don't know, Three Stooges style? Okay. An off-duty police officer in swim trunks took a flower pot and bashed it over his head. (laughs) Wow. I mean, I do appreciate the resourcefulness. Uh Really? Yeah. So just imagine a kind of portly man in really tight 1940 swim trunks with a flower pot. With a flower pot over his head getting ready. So they hit him over the head and they bring him in for questioning. They don't take him to the hospital. No. <laughs> also not Does a not thing see back a doctor. <laughs> yeah. Now a little bit about Hirons. He was an extremely intelligent man. He was actually 16 years old when he started studying at the University of Chicago. Okay. He was able to test out of high school and go straight into college. I mean, respect. He Mad was, respect. Yeah, he was really smart, well-read. He paid his way by working as an usher at a movie theater. Um, but Hirons did have a kind of troubled upbringing. He was the child of immigrants who fled from Luxembourg. His father was an alcoholic, and his mother was a really oppressive religious woman. So, like, everyone who grew up in the Midwest. Yeah, yeah. She shamed Hiron so much about sex that when he actually did get a girlfriend, he went to kiss her and immediately threw up because he was so ashamed. Oh, my God. That's like the worst first date ever. Classy. Classy. (laughs) So they brought him in right away, right after getting his dome smashed in. And 
they're starting to question him, and he is drifting in and out of consciousness no. because no medical attention. No way. You mean he wasn't totally there after right? probably getting a concussion? Right? Terracotta straight to the dome. Yeah. Um, they gave him no food and no water, and he was held for six days in a row being questioned for almost 24 hours a straight each day. I'm kind of surprised you aren't throwing waterboarding in there. Yeah. <laughs> Now, he was 17 at the time, still a juvenile, and he had asked for his parents, but they were not allowed to see him, which, guess what, if you don't know, illegal. Yes, very. (laughs) He also asked for a lawyer, because again, he's a very intelligent man, and he was denied, denied outright for days, which again, if you don't know, straight up illegal. Super illegal. But the piece de resistance of this entire interrogation was the way in which they coaxed a confession out of him. Okay. okay. After all of the beating, the dome smashing, the belligerence, no food or water, refusing to let him see anybody, they decided that they were going to pull some good old-fashioned detective work and give him sodium pentothal. Do you know what that is? Wait, I feel like that... Isn't that something they use in, like, death row cocktail? No. Oh, It's truth serum. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely on the wrong track there. Definitely also not legal. Yes. Um, Using sodium pentothal is actually inadmissible in court and had been since about the 1920s. So a good 26 years. Yeah. Still new. It didn't become fully illegal until the 60s, but you couldn't use the evidence in court, so why bother? Right, right. Since he was underage, they also should have gotten consent from his parents to take the sodium pentothal, and they didn't. Oh, my God. Okay. (laughs) So, according to the police records, under the influence of the drug, Hiron spoke of having an alternate ego named George who told him to do bad things. The following day, he was giving a lumbar puncture, which, if you don't know what that is, is a spinal tap. Yeah. For no reason. At the police station? No. They drove him to the hospital, gave him a spinal tap, drove him back, and then administered a polygraph test. Okay, I, this just does not make any logical sense it's whatsoever. It's completely illogical, wow. and they were doing all of these things to stress his body. And if you know anything about a polygraph test, it really reads the stress to your body yeah. and your reaction. Yeah. So if you give someone a spinal tap, which is probably the most excruciating procedure that you could have that's non-invasive, mm. um, yeah, they're not going to feel real good. No, no, no. <laughs> so again... All done without consent. They do the polygraph test. It comes back inconclusive. Guilty. Good times. During all of this, the press was having a field day accusing Hirons of all kinds of things and claiming all of these additional crimes he had done, calling him like the horrible lipstick slayer, just like off-the-wall stuff, in true 1940s newspaper fashion. Now, when it comes to evidence in the case, again, a little precarious. A great deal of this relied on all of the handwriting. So if you know anything about investigative techniques back then, there wasn't a whole lot. There was fingerprints and handwriting. And handwriting. <laughs> did they do hair back then too? Like visually? They, they did a little bit, but yeah. it wasn't really, you know. Yeah. Well, no. And let's count the number of those that are still valid today. Yeah. So yeah. things like that, they would say like, oh, this person has blonde hair because there was blonde hair found at the scene. That was about the extent of it. They didn't do, like, microscope work on it. That was a few decades later. Okay. Um, So they were going to really rely on the handwriting. 
They claimed that the writing on the wall and lipstick matched the writing on the ransom note, which it didn't. (laughs) Of course not. Um, This was kind of also the only way that they were connecting all three of these cases. So if you remember, the two first cases were two middle-aged white women alone who were stabbed and then had their heads covered. The third case was a girl who was abducted and then murdered. So, like, I don't see a connection between those. Oh, no. yeah, that's very, if there is, it's a very flimsy. And not to mention the fact that usually when you escalate, you don't escalate going from a 45-year-old woman to a six-year-old girl. Yeah, yeah. So, they were looking at the handwriting, and they got some samples from Hirons, and they said, oh, these totally match. They don't. Okay. <laughs> Then they went to the fingerprints because they're like, oh, this is some other solid evidence we have. They checked the fingerprints on the ransom note and a bloody print that had been taken off of the doorknob at the first murder. They stated that the fingerprints were too degraded to really tell, so they sent them to the FBI for analysis. Now, this was back when the FBI was kind of just getting into their prime. and uh, Hoover? Yeah, Hoover was bananas. Mm. And... uh, he would do anything to convict anyone, even if that meant faking some evidence. So, of course. There was supposedly a nine-point match of the fingerprints, which equates to roughly about 65% of the population matching the fingerprints. That's fine. Some That's quick murder totally math. Fine. Yeah, totally normal. Now, the FBI actually requires at least 12 points of comparison to call it a match, so this was well below the initial um, Then the investigators stated to the press that they had the fingerprints and they didn't match. And then they went back on their word a day later and said, oh, no, 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 they do match. Just kidding. So flip-flopping in the press. Oh, God. Again, not really a reliable time for newspapers. (laughs) After all the evidence was found at the scene, and I'm putting like heavy quotes on this, evidence, they looked at Hiron's dorm room because he was at the University of Chicago. And they found loads of stolen items. Um, In his, like, kind of cachet of stolen goods, they found a scrapbook that he took from a World War II vet that had pictures of the man's time in Germany, including Nazi officials and death camps. And so they made the conclusion that he must be a Nazi if he has this. Yeah. (laughs) Logically. Um, They also found a copy of Psychopathia Sexualis from 1880. 86, Ooh, which is all about the study of sexual deviancy. Okay. Again, he was a 17-year-old who got accepted into college at 16 and was studying all kinds of things. Sure. Um, so maybe not too abnormal. Oh, my God. Um, then they also found some other war bonds. So, like, just some random stuff that he was stealing from people. Now, they came across something else. They actually matched a gun that they had found at another crime to a gun that they had found in his room. Now, he's a burglar, so he had a gun, and he was going around just with it for safety precautions. But on the night that he was captured, he had a different gun. So the gun in his room, he had actually stolen. So it was part of his cache of stolen goods. Okay. Now, that gun matched a bullet that was found at a scene about three blocks away A bullet had flown through a woman's window, grazing her arm. So someone was shooting off a gun in the middle of the street. It went through her window. She called the police. So they matched that bullet to a bullet in the gun found in his dorm room. 
He said he never used that gun because he had stolen it from somebody. So it is logical to think that he stole it after this incident. Yeah, I could, I could see that. Now, Hirons was eventually given lawyers, but they didn't want anything to do with him, and they actually thought he was guilty, so they did the least lawyering they could possible. Wow, that's like that's classic, like classic mm-hmm. old school defense lawyer. Yeah, they were like, this guy is totally guilty. He has, you know, sexual deviancy books in his dorm room. I mean, what 18-year-old doesn't? Right, right. <laughs> so they decided that they were going to get him a plea deal because that was what they were comfortable with. So they convinced him that they were going to take a plea deal, forego the trial, because he would definitely get the electric chair. So... In July, the DA and Hirons' attorneys met to discuss the plea agreement, and on August 7th, it was announced that Hirons would take the plea of life without the possibility of parole for all three of the murders. Now, immediately after this plea deal, Hirons began stating that his confession was coerced and he was innocent. Even the daughter of the first victim, Josephine Ross, doubted he was guilty. She said in a newspaper, quote, I cannot believe the young Hirons murdered my mother. He does not fit into the picture of my mother's death. I have looked at all the things Hirons stole, and there was nothing of my mother's things amongst them. Okay, fair, fair. So she didn't think that he had did it. Now, during this time, there's no appeals process in place, and the idea of a coerced confession was, like, laughed at. Right, right. Even police brutality was shrugged off. So no one cared. Oh, my God. (laughs) Hirons wrote to as many people as he could trying to get his case looked at again. And since he had never had a trial and he took a plea deal, he stated that he had been kind of railroaded by his own lawyers and the police, which is technically illegal. (laughs) Yeah. While in prison, Hirons became a model prisoner. He earned a Bachelor's of Arts. He began painting. He assisted with others' inmates' law research. And he would go before the parole board often, and each time they would praise his accolades and how much he was doing in jail, and then deny his release. That's, yep, sounds, if you're not, I mean, if you're not admitting guilt on parole, that's pretty much it for you. Yeah. Yeah. So, he wasn't having a good time, he was trying to get out, he was trying to reach out to as many people as possible, but it wasn't until the 1980s when things started to kind of get a little traction. Dolores Kennedy was a secretary and a journalist. She was a legal secretary for the attorney that had assisted the Deegan family when she first found out about William Hirons. So, she was intrigued, and she looked through a lot of the case, and while looking through the files more and more, she began to become convinced of the possibility that he was falsely convicted. She decided to take the investigation further and wrote a book about it called William Hirons, His Day in Court. In 1994, Kennedy formed a committee to set Hirons free, headed by Jed Stone, a Chicago criminal defense lawyer, and they assembled psychiatrists, lawyers, handwriting analysis, fingerprint experts, and professors. The whole nine yards. Yes. So the result of their uh, search was really shocking. They found that the handwriting on the ransom note did not match the sample given by Hirons. The lipstick message on the wall also did not match Hiron's writing and did not match the ransom note. So these were all different types of writing. The, quote, bloody fingerprint found from Brown's apartment was actually a rolled fingerprint. Now, you can't do that naturally. Your finger doesn't do that. Your finger doesn't roll like they do when they take your fingerprints at the police station. I know, I've been arrested. Yep, yep, yep. (laughs) It doesn't happen. So... They believed that the evidence was fraudulent. And when they looked back, 
they found out that indeed the fingerprint had been planted. It was taken off of his rolled fingerprint card and put on another card saying that that was the fingerprint taken at the scene of the crime. So, they also looked at the fingerprints on the face of Deegan's note, the ransom note, because they were like, all right, if this one's fraudulent, there's probably something going on with this. So, when that note was initially given to the FBI to have its fingerprint analysis done, they did a gassing method that reveals the fingerprints, which causes the image to eventually disappear, so they have to take photographs. Sure. Now, they didn't take any photographs. Science and junk. They just did the gas analysis and wrote about what they found without taking the photographic evidence of the fingerprints. Best science. And the more that you gas these particular fingerprints, the more it degrades. So they don't do it repeatedly. So they basically just forged their findings. Now the research also uncovered that there was another suspect who was being investigated at the time Hirons was arrested for his burglary. Richard Thomas confessed to the Deegan crime from his jail cell in Phoenix, Arizona, shortly before Hirons was arrested. Okay. So this man... They just ignored it? Yeah. Oh. Basically. So he confesses and he says, I did it. Now, he was in jail in Phoenix, Arizona for molesting his own child. Okay. Class act. So this is kind of showing that he has a pattern. Yeah, yeah. Um... The Chicago police were summoned but quickly lost interest in Thomas when the state's attorney announced without consulting anyone that Hirons had confessed and he was the killer. Okay. (laughs) Quality police. Sure. The team went into their own investigation and found out that he was probably the one who killed the girl. (laughs) So the handwriting from Thomas... Um, that they had on some of the paperwork that they got from Phoenix, Arizona, matched the handwriting on the ransom note. Thomas was in Chicago when Susan Deegan was killed, and he was actually hanging out at a business that was a block over from where she lived. Okay. Coincidence. Now, if you were to look at the map at where her body parts were found in the sewer, it was directly in front of where he hung out. So the proximity, pretty close. Makes sense, yeah. Uh, Thomas was actually also a male nurse, and he had molested several other children. Um, So we had a predilection towards this. So chances are, if you're doing that, the next logical ramp up would be murder. Now, in 1995, a clemency hearing was held in Chicago at which the Illinois Prisoner Review Board had the opportunity to hear the expert witness and view the evidence used to kind of coerce this confession. So his team brought forth the evidence. They were like, this is what you need to hear. Now, Governor Edgar denied the clemency and denied him year after year after year for several years after this. Because of course. they cannot, a police department cannot admit that they are wrong. <laughs> the cops are never wrong, guys. Never wrong. Quality policing. Now, in 1998, that same review board gave Hirons a three-year kind of set review. So they say, you know what, we'll check back in three years, see what's up then, hear the case again. Well, it actually didn't get heard again until 2001. So a little bit longer than wow, three years. Oh yeah. Wait, this happened, this started in the 1940s? Yes. Oh my God, okay. Fun fact, 
He was actually the longest serving inmate in the history of Illinois. He served 65 years. Wow. Yeah. So Hiron's most recent parole hearing to date was held on July 26th of 2007. The Illinois Prisoner Review Board decision was in a 14 to 0 vote against giving him parole. Um, I'm kind of the- surprised that still they're like, nah. So uh, one of the board members uh, kind of stated in his like closing argument as to why the, the board wasn't going to give him parole. He said, God will forgive you, but the state won't. So classic. Oh, my God. <laughs> now, unfortunately, Hirons died on March 5th, 2012 at the age of 83 from diabetes complications. Um, but there is still a large... Uh, amount of evidence against him for not just the murder of the little girl, but also the other two murders. So that is the case of the Chicago lipstick killer. Wow. That was, that was wild. Let's hear it for Janelle. Thank you. Good job. I love that story. I mean, <laughs> I mean, as much as you can love a murder story. As much story. as you can love murder, yes. Yeah. That's crazy, dude. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes chumbacasino.com no all right so i am going to cover a serial killer that didn't start in Chicago, Uh-oh. but definitely finished here. Uh, his name is Andrew Yerdalis. Okay. Now, Yerdalis grew up in the Chicago area, although there's not really a ton known about his childhood other than some light animal cruelty. Just a touch. Yeah, he like beat the shit out of their dog and then told his parents that it had fallen. Yeah. Like a fatal fall. I don't think that's animal cruelty, like a touch. <laughs> it's just a touch, yeah. Um, in his later trials, attorneys would try to claim that he suffered from childhood trauma and fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, but... Yeah, that's pretty that's, popular. Yes. I mean, whose mother didn't drink when they were in the womb back in the day, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I yeah. would say, especially in like the 60s. And alcohol? Like, yeah. <laughs> Uh, after graduating from Thornridge High School in Dalton, Illinois in 1984, Dallas joined the U.S. Marine Corps, where he was stationed at Camp Pendleton in California before serving in Desert Storm. Now, in January 1986, while he was stationed in California, Dallas traveled to Saddleback Community College campus in Mission Viejo. For this trip, he packed a hunting knife in his car. I mean, you need it. If you're going to community college, you need a hunting knife. <laughs> you need a yes. hunting knife. Uh, while he was there, Yordalis found arts student, 23-year-old Robin Brandley, who had been on campus serving as an usher for a jazz concert. As Brandley walked back to her car, Yordalis followed her in the darkness, attacking her when she least expected it, and stabbing Brandley 41 times in the back, neck, chest, and hands. That is also overkill. 
Yes. Uh, now, Branley's body was discovered by a security guard on campus who, like, he thought it was like a mannequin that had fallen over in the parking lot. Okay, it is never a mannequin, and it is never just a plastic bag on the side of the road. It is always a body. Always. I do love the idea that <laughs> mannequins are just, like, laying all over everywhere right? all the time. Because that makes more sense than a person. Right, a massive mannequin littering problem is yeah. more likely. Okay. Yeah. Um, so he did find her body and immediately called police. Um, Yerdalis then returned back to his marine post as if nothing had happened. Uh, he was able to lay dormant for about two years um, without anybody suspecting anything other than him just being like kind of socially awkward. He didn't really fit in with the rest of the Marine Corps cliques, I guess. I don't, I don't know. He can't semper the fi? No. <laughs> okay. Um, but two years seemed to be long enough for him because uh, in July 1988, he met with a sex worker, 29-year-old Julie McGee. Before their encounter ended, Uridala shot McGee in the head with a 45 ACP caliber pistol. I don't know what that means, but I'm sure people here know guns. I don't know. Um, he then left her body in a ditch close to Cathedral City, California. Now, uh, the break between McGee's murder and his next killing was much, much shorter, only two months. Again, Yordales had another date with a sex worker, 31-year-old Mary Ann Wells in San Diego. Again, Yordales shot Wells and left her body in an abandoned warehouse. Okay. Police would find her body in the warehouse later in 1988. Now, the following year in 1989, Yordales met with another sex worker, 18-year-old Tammy Irwin. Irwin was picked up in Palm Springs and unfortunately met the same fate as the women before her. Um, Yordala shot Irwin in the hip and the head, which resulted in her death. Irwin's body was discovered by police on a street in Palm Springs in April 1989. So already we're seeing this pattern of meeting up with sex workers. They're either being shot or stabbed and then kind of just dumped wherever. Yeah, so definitely easier prey than the college student. Yeah. Um, two years later, the Marines had an awakening of their own and realized that Yurdas might not be cut out for the military life. Hmm. Um, I wonder. <laughs> they had previously promoted him, but it never worked out because people who were underneath him like didn't respect him and never listened to what he told them to do. So they were just like, all right. <laughs> I don't, I don't think you're cut out for this. And in 1991, Yara was honorably discharged from the Marine Corps. Oh, honorably. That's a shock. I know. Very unusual for a serial killer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Usually it's very honorable. <laughs> or they just like peace out yeah, in the middle of their Yeah, they just wander service. off into the desert. Uh, so when he was honorably discharged in 1991, Yardalis decided to move back to Chicago to live with his parents. Now, if you thought this would have stopped the killings... Uh, you would be dead wrong. wrong. Dead wrong. Dead wrong. <laughs> <laughs> ha, 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 ha. Um, although he didn't at this point act while he was in Chicago, Yuridalis repeatedly went back to California where his murder spree had begun. That is like the prime killing location, though. If you California? think about like serial killers, like there's a lot, you know, in the 70s and 80s going. Well, they got lots of deserts. Yeah. Lots of highways. Lots of highways. Lots mm -hmm. of open area. Lots of sex workers. Lots of sex workers. <laughs> In 
In September 1992, Iridalis traveled to California where he met 19-year-old Jennifer Aspenson. And in an interview with CBS's 48 Hours, Aspenson described what happened while she was on her way to her job at a home for crippled children. Oh, God. Quote, I was working the night shift there from 10 p.m. until 6 in the morning. I went to the bus stop to go to work. I had to run into the store to buy something, and I saw that the bus had left without me, so I came running out in a panic. I knew that was the last bus for the night. I had no way to get to work. But just as she was wondering how to get to work, a man, seemingly totally harmless, um, rolled up in his car and asked Aspenson if she needed a ride. Oh, God. Um, Okay. Never, ever, ever take a ride from a stranger. (laughs) She does recall him being so nice and charming that he never, like, she never had, like, her fear signal go up. Like, she was just like, nah, he's cool. Um, And so she took the offer to get a ride to work. And when she left work, Aspenson noticed that the man was waiting for her again. Like, Uh hey, um, do you need a ride home? And since it had gone so well the first time, she took him up on his offer um, now, if you hadn't guessed it by now, the man in the car, his name was Uridellis. Uh He started driving off with Aspenson in the car and suddenly snapped, slamming Aspenson's head into the dash and pulling a gun. He then tied her hands with twine before driving her into the desert. Uridellis pulled the car over and attempted to rape Aspenson, but when he couldn't, he forced her out of the car and into the trunk and then drove off like further into the desert. Somehow, Aspenson was able to break the twine on her hands and force the lid of the trunk open, allowing her to slip out of the trunk and run. Now, Uridalis had attempted to chase her down with a machete. Okay, (laughs) zero to ten. He just has, like, machetes and hunting knives and shit in his car. Mm -hmm. Um, So he did chase her down with a a machete, but when Aspenson got the attention of a couple truck drivers, uh, Uridalis hopped back in his car and sped away. Now, she, of course, reported the attack to police, but they didn't really have any information other than this guy's description, and they weren't really able to take their investigation further. Now, I will also say Jennifer would later go on to write a book about her escape growing up in a, uh, and growing up in a dysfunctional family in Coachella Valley called Girl in the Treehouse. Would recommend it if you want to know more about this case. Now, this was obviously a close call for Uridellis, but he wouldn't kill again for another three years. Oh, man. He has, he has a little bit of a restraint yeah. as much as a murderer can. Yeah. Uh, but as many serial killers do... Uridalis returned to California to kill yet again. This time, in March 1995, he met with 32-year-old Denise Maney, a sex worker in Cathedral City, California. Uh, Once again, Uridalis forced Maney into his car where he drove her out into the desert. There, she was raped, stabbed, and shot. She was also undressed and essentially left in the desert for the animals and the buzzards and all sorts of stuff out there. Following Maney's murder, Uridalis realized, wait... Why am I traveling all the way back to California when I could just murder women here in Chicago? I mean, it was smart, though, because they're was. not going to look it for was. someone who's not in California, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he had been back in the area for some time at that point. He had gotten a job at an Eddie Bauer. He was a, uh, a security <laughs> Sorry, guard for Eddie Bauer on Michigan Avenue. 
Wow. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he had become somewhat respected in his community. So In his khakis. In his khakis, yeah. So rather than traveling to the West Coast, in April 1996, Yordalis went to Bloomington, Indiana, where he met and murdered 25-year-old Laura Uliaki, who had been working as a sex worker there. He then dumped her body into Wolf Lake, which is just on the border of Cook County and Hammond, Indiana. Mm-hmm. In the summer of 1996, Yuridalis met 21-year, excuse me, 22-year-old Lynn Huber while she was working as a sex worker in Chicago. Now, according to Yuridalis, during one of their dates, he had pulled into an alleyway so they could have sex, and Huber began arguing. And she, when she tried to get out of the truck, Yuridalis grabbed her, shot her in the back of the head. Um, he then drove Huber's body to Wolf Lake, where he stabbed her body multiple times, shot her again, and then left her in the lake. I'm pretty sure she was dead the first time. This is the overkill okay. theme, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, Yuridalis would take his eighth and final victim in July 1996, 21-year-old Cassandra Corum. Now, again, according to Yuridalis, the two had met two years prior, in fact, most of the details of that night were given to police by Eurydalus later. Um, so it's safe to say that at some point, the two of them met up. By the end of the night, Coram had been murdered and dumped into the Vermilion River. Flash forward just a few days later, when on July 14th, 1996, police discovered the body of an unidentified woman. Her wrists were handcuffed and ankles bound with duct tape, and her mouth had been covered with duct tape. An autopsy determined she had died from seven stab wounds and a gunshot wound to the head. And authorities were able to identify her as Cassandra Corum, who by that point had been reported missing from Hammond, Indiana. When they found Corum's body, police remembered that they had just discovered two other bodies with similar wounds in Wolf Lake. They were like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that other girl who got stabbed a thousand times and shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that one. <laughs> and the two bodies that they had already found in Wolf Lake were that of Laura Uliaki and Lynn Huber. So they began investigating all three as connected, and ballistics testing confirmed the bullets found in all three women were fired by the same gun. We could talk about the validity of ballistics testing, yes. but... Check our, our, yes. our episode about yeah. all of that. <laughs> The next chunk of this is all straight from an appeal to the Illinois Supreme Court in the People v. Eurodallis. Quote, On April 1st, 1997, a police officer in Hammond, Indiana, responded to a call involving defendant and a prostitute. The prostitute told the officer that defendant wanted to take her to Wolf Lake, handcuff and duct tape her, and have sex with her. He just gave it all away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in November of 1996... The same officer had arrested defendant for unlawful possession of a firearm and at that time had found rolls of duct tape in defendant's truck. So this incident with the sex worker prompted police to test the gun that they had confiscated in that earlier incident from Eurodallis, at which point they determined it was the gun that had fired the bullets found in Coram, Uliaki, and Huber. So they decided to bring him in for questioning. When he was asked if he recognized any of the women, he, of course, flatly denied it. Um, and they, they decided to um, ask him questions about the gun that they have confiscated. Again, this is from the appeal. Quote, during questioning, defendant indicated he had bought this handgun approximately four or five years earlier from a gun shop in Calumet City, and it had been under his exclusive control until it was confiscated in Hammond, Indiana. 
when officers told um, when officers told defendant that three women had been killed by bullets fired from his gun, defendant paused for a minute, took off his security guard badge, oh God. started taking off his shoelaces, and said, "Well, I guess I'm not going to work today." So he had some understanding, because like when you get arrested, they take your shoelaces, your belt, and everything, yeah, so that you don't try to like, kill yourself. Better call into work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, defendant then provided the police with detailed confessions to all three Illinois murders. Without prompting from the police, defendant also mentioned some matters that California authorities might be interested in. Oh boy, all right. <laughs> Defendant subsequently confessed to the murders of Robin Branley, Julie McGee, Marianne Wells, Tammy Irwin, and Denise Maney, as well as the kidnapping, rape, and attempted murder of J.A., which was Jennifer Aspenson, all of which were committed in California between 1986 and 1995. Now, Uridalis was arrested, and the details of his confession sent to California for their own investigators. Uh, Illinois decided to begin drafting an indictment uh, charging Iridalis with the murders of Coram, Uliaki, and Huber. Now, of course, at this point in the late 90s, Illinois was on the brink of some huge criminal justice reforms, including the death penalty. And there was some question as to whether or not the state would attempt a death penalty conviction, um, which they ultimately decided to do. Iridalis was tried for both Uliaki and Huber at the same time, being found guilty for both and receiving the death penalty in May 2002. Now, shortly after, Northwestern University released a study about the rate of wrongful convictions on death row in Illinois. Hint, it is a whole lot. Yeah. Illinois literally leads the nation in wrongful convictions. Last year, they had 167 in 2021 (laughs) alone. They also celebrated the 3,000th wrongful convictions since it was the death penalty was brought back in 1986 so so we're number one in something we're number one (laughs) in wrongful convictions um so uh this made its way to then governor george ryan who decided to clear death row before he left office On January 11th, 2003, Governor Ryan Ryan commuted the sentences of all 167 people on death row to life imprisonment, including Uridalis, but there was still um, an Illinois case that they had to try. He was um, found guilty and, once again, sentenced to the death penalty. However, the timing worked out again when in March 2011, then-Governor Pat Quinn signed legislation abolishing the death penalty in Illinois. So once again, Uridalis had his Illinois conviction commuted to life in prison. Now, hours after Governor Quinn signed the legislation, authorities in Orange County, California, began extradition proceedings to bring Uridalis there to stand trial. And by May 2018, um, Uridalis had made it out to California, where he was charged with five counts of first-degree murder. It took the jury less than 24 hours to convict um, and find him guilty on all counts, and Uridalis received the death penalty by October 2018. Now, just one month later, Uh Uridalis, who was 54 years old at this point, was found dead in his cell in an apparent suicide. Apparent suicide? Apparent suicide. There's two, actually, like within two days of each other, two death row inmates had committed suicide, but they were like, they're not linked. We're pretty sure that's what it is. And that's suspicious. An interesting little factoid from the News AU article I used for some research. At the time, um, Uridalis committed suicide in 2018. 
prison officials had said since 1978, when California reinstated uh, capital punishment, 79 condemned inmates had died from natural causes, 25 had taken their own lives, 13 had been executed in California, and two were executed interstate. So, you know, high, high rate of suicide, I would say. Yeah. Anyway, so that's kind of the end for Uridalis. He took, he took his own life and... And that was that. And that was that. Clean ending. Yes. Thank you, Vicky. That was yes. fucking nuts. <laughs> yes. Okay. So I know we are like right butting up to the end of our time. So we're going to wrap up um, really quick. We just want to say thank you to Neil and Parapalooza and for setting this all up. And Pat from Ghostly Pod, thank you so mm-hmm. much for helping us out. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, do, have, we do have more shows oh, coming yes. up. <laughs> yeah, stick around. Um, There's more coming up after yeah. us. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and if you liked what we do, we are going to be at the Elgin Fringe Festival in September. Um, that's a whole weekend of all kinds of awesome, exciting things. Um, and we'll so be there. So check that out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you like this episode, you can find more like this at thebadtastepodcast.com. We're also on Instagram and Twitter, BT Podcast. Um, and Facebook, so go ahead and check us out. We'll be hanging out if you guys have any questions, but that is it for us. Thank yeah, you, you. Parapalooza. It was as if a wave of evil washed over this town. We are all people in some form or another.